You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. Ours has been described as an age of fear and anxiety. And there are many reasons why that appears to be so. We live in a society with a rapidly, rapidly changing social order, which is very uh, hard on, on people's mental stability. We live in a society that is highly transient, where people move from place to place and no longer have a sense of where they belong. We live in a society that has increasing levels of self-imposed expectations, which are difficult to meet. But I think possibly the, most, the biggest reason for this accelerant, why our age could be called an age of fear and anxiety, is the ever-present reality of media saturation. It's the 24-7 news cycle and the rapid expansion of social media. So if there's a train wreck in India, um, it's at our fingertips in moments. Wildfires in Nova Scotia and Alberta, um, they're just a click away. A war in Ukraine appears to become our war. The problems, troubles, and anxieties of an entire world are literally in our back pocket. Professor Valerie de Courville-Nickel, who is a professor at Concordia University in Montreal and the author of a paper on this called Anxiety in Middle-Class America, you know, it's, it's a crazy thing. Here we are, probably the most prosperous society that's ever existed, and yet marked by this anxiety. And she says this, the scope of anxiety is enormous. We've become aware of the endless risks and the catastrophic potential we're generating despite our best intentions to make the world a better place. And yet others would remind us that anxiety has been a problem and part of the human condition for a long, long time. It was 75 years ago that historian Arthur Schlesinger wrote this about the middle of the 20th century. He said, Western man, in the middle of the 20th century, this is just after the Second World War, is tense, uncertain, to drift. This was in the middle of the Cold War. We look upon our epoch as a time of troubles, an age of anxiety. Hundred years earlier, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard complained of the impact of, of anxiety on his Danish society of the 19th century. And he said this, no grand inquisitor has in readiness such terrible torture as has anxiety. One of the experts in this is a lady called Professor Andrea Tone, um, who is an author of a book called The Age of Anxiety. And after pointing out the present anxiety, uh, the present pandemic of fear and anxiety and the impact that's had on society, and her specialty is actually in all of the different medical interventions on anxiety over the past 50 years and their impact, things that have helped, things that haven't. But she brings the whole issue into perspective when she says, in one sense, anxiety has always plagued us. History is replete with narratives of those who have suffered under its spell. And Professor Tone has a point to make. For over 2,500 years ago, the writer of Psalm 27 struggles with fear and anxiety. There were adversaries, there were false accusers, there were troubles, and there were fears. And in this psalm, which is ascribed to David, the poet faces the fears of his world. 
the adversaries that sought to destroy him. And they were major troubles. Look at how they are described. Psalm 27, verse 2, evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, to metaphorically, they wanted to devour him. Verse 3, an army encamp against me. Verse 6, my enemies all around me. Verse 12, false witnesses have risen against me. Fear is real. It is not to be trivialized. The psalmist faced serious trouble. And may I add, I, I don't want to get off on this tangent. We could spend lots of time on it. But actually, fear has a purpose. And properly applied, it's a warning of danger. A fearless toddler on the edge of a cliff is indeed a just cause of parental fear. So denial of fear is really not a solution. So if practicing denial is foolhardy and unhelpful, how as Christians do we face the anxieties, fears, and difficulties of our lives? In Psalm 27, I find three key steps that each of us can take as we face the ever-present fears and anxieties of our lives. Three steps that the psalmist David took and steps that you and I can take as we face our fears. So if you turn with me in the Bible to Psalm 27 or on your phone or you can follow on the screen, um, let's look at it together. But maybe one comment before we head into the text, um, just a little brief aside, but I think it's helpful not only for this psalm but for a whole bunch of the psalms we look at. As we read the psalms, we sometimes come across various statements that we wonder, how does that apply to us as Christians? This sounds like something very much from, from Israel's history. How does it apply to us as Christians? For example, Psalm 27, verse 3 says this, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war rise against me, yet I will be confident. And we always need to remember the Old Testament, including the Psalms, was written over under what is called the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant to Israel. The Old Covenant related specifically to a nation, the nation of of Israel. And as a, na a national entity, as a country, just like Canada as a country, they faced attack, they faced war from various surrounding nations. They were at risk from their physical enemies. In a very helpful book on biblical interpretation that is helping us to understand the Bible, which is a book called Journey into God's Word, written by Scott Duval and Daniel Hayes. And I might say, when you can bring the quote up there. Um, with Duval and Hayes, that's a book worth putting in your library. Um, you can pick it up on Amazon for $15 or $20 or Christian books. Um, if you want to borrow one, I think Darcy's got one. But it really is helpful in helping us understand because this is a big issue. How do I understand the Old Testament today? What am I to take from the Old to the New? They say this, keep in mind we must read and interpret the Old Testament, including the Psalms, as Christians. We do not want to interpret and apply this literature as if we were Old Testament Hebrews, which we are not. And this is important to keep in mind, important to remember as we read the Bible. Ask a question as you read a passage from the Old Testament. Is this passage part of the Old Covenant? Is it directed at New Testament, directed at Christians of every tribe and language and nation and not tied to any national entity? Duval and Hayes continue. They say, when reading the Old Testament, consider how to cross into the New Testament. Does the New Testament teaching modify or qualify the principle in the Psalms? And if so, how? So today, we are no longer 
in a situation where armies are encamped around us here as we sit at this building. Um, but we still face powerful opponents. And so the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6, verse 12, he makes a New Testament, a new covenant application of this old covenant truth. Here's what he writes, Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the ruling, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Apostle Paul says, don't kid yourself, people. You are in a spiritual battle. And if he were here today, he would say, people, today, you are in a spiritual battle. But the enemy doesn't have swords and chariots. The enemy, though, is just as real. It's a spiritual enemy encamped against you, surrounding you, an enemy designed to discourage you, to trip you up, to cause you to withdraw into your little rabbit hole in fear. There's the enemy of peer pressure. Everybody's doing it. There's the enemy of discouragement. You're on your own. You're a marginalized minority. The enemy of fear. The spiritual application of the Old Testament is for us today. So with that background, let's begin in Psalm 27, and we'll begin reading at verse 1, facing the fears and anxieties of our lives. I'm reading from the ESV. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. How could the psalmist withstand the threats of those who wanted to devour him? How could he have courage in the face of armies of war that surrounded him? Well, here's how. He had placed his confidence, his trust, his faith in the Lord. He is the one who is the light, his salvation, and his stronghold. Rather than focusing on his enemies, rather than focusing on the armies which were all around him, rather than focusing on his ever-present fear, David focuses on his faith in the Lord. In a time of trouble, rather than focusing on his fear, David focused on his faith. There's powerful words used here to describe the Lord. He is my salvation, literally the one who rescues me. And powerful metaphors, the stronghold of my life, or the other version we heard there talked about it, my fortress, my hiding place, my refuge. And then there's this metaphor, the Lord is my light, my light. Light is such a powerful symbol of God's divine power and presence. The first act of creation was to create light, Genesis 1 verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Light dispelled the darkness. Light allowed the hidden to become visible. Light symbolizes all that is good. Light symbolizes all that is right. I wonder if Jesus was meditating on this psalm when he said in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, I confess to being intrigued 
by lighthouses. And uh, Sharon has gone down a few rabbit holes and rabbit trails, I guess, with me looking to find old lighthouses. Um, and I know they're only auxiliary navigational guidance systems, and they've really been replaced by GPS and radar, which are much, much more effective. But in an age gone by, they were life and death to a weary sailor. The bright beacon warned and guided. It was a light across a stormy sea, or in this case, a stormy lake. A few weeks ago, Sharon and I rode our bikes, they recommend it, from Dyer's Bay up to Cabot Head. It's about 12 kilometers, so old people like us can do it. Um, but the Cabot Head lighthouse in its time was literally a lighthouse. So this one off to the right is an auxiliary building that was built later. But the original lighthouse was a house that the family lived in, all isolated out there. And they had to come in originally by a boat to get there. The road came in much, much later. And then the, the light with the massive lens, which I believe came from France, was up on the roof. It was literally a lighthouse. And um, today it's been replaced by this rather gaunt but efficient steel solar-powered tower. Um, the whole family's replaced by a solar panel. But anyhow, it's another. Here's the fascinating part. When that lighthouse was functional, the Cabot Head Lighthouse was able to send a light, a beam, across Georgian Bay for 40 kilometers. That's farther than from here to Listowel. Incredible stuff. So this, this picture, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He is the one who illumines. He's the one who guides. He's the one who directs. How do I live out my life in an age of fear and anxiety? I need to focus my faith. The question I ask myself is, where does my focus lie? Will I focus on my fears or will I focus on my faith? I love that verse. Put it up there. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It would be a real pity if you were to go home today and not take that verse home with you. So I'm going to encourage you to take the verse home. So these guys over here are the first line. They're the light people and they're the stronghold people. You guys are the ones with the dark print. Whom shall I fear? Let's give it a try. The Lord... Let's try it one more time, and then you can close your eyes and do it. Okay, one more time. Eyes closed. Here's the answer. No one and nothing. This is a verse to take home. How do you live your life as a Christian in an age of fear? You focus your faith. Now, let's come to the second part, beginning at verse 4. Psalm 27, beginning at verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, and he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high up on a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Here's the second step to live your life as a Christian in an age of fear. Set 
your priorities. Look at verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, says David. Of course, he asked other things. We'll find that out in just a moment. But the intent here is, this is the one thing which is above the others. This is the one thing which is really important. Says David, this is my priority request. And what was that priority? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To experience peace in a time of anxiety, to experience safety in a time of fear, David wanted to experience the Lord's presence in his house. He uses different words, his temple, his shelter, his tent. I suppose David could have experienced the presence of the Lord on his own, and he did sometimes. We know that. I mean, when you read Psalm 23, it, it's got him out there on the hillside. So he could have experienced the Lord on the hillside with his sheep, or he could experience the Lord in the woods. But that wasn't his request. That wasn't his priority. His deep desire was that he was going to join with the other worshipers in the place of worship in Jerusalem. That there, in a unique way, he would feel God's presence. He would join in, look at verse 6, with sacrifices, with shouts of joy. And just like we did this morning, 2,500 years later, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. His priority was that all the days of his life, whenever it was possible, he would join with believers in worship. Brothers and sisters, if we are to overcome the downward pull of our age of fear, and I don't want to be negative, but the downward pull is going to become greater. If we are to overcome that, we need to set this as a priority to join with the church in worship, to inquire, to gaze, to dwell, to sing, to make melody to the Lord. And as we join together, sometimes in ways that we can't describe and can't explain, Jesus himself draws near. And we sense the Lord's presence, and we're renewed, and we have the strength to continue on. The 20th century preacher, Dr. John Gladstone, tells this rather pointed story. He tells a story about a family that had gone to church, but after a period of time, the father decided he didn't want to go anymore. He had better things to do on Sunday morning, like play golf. So his wife and children went on their own, and this continued on for quite a period of time. And one Sunday, the young lad, who wasn't quite 10 years old, got up the courage to ask his father if he wouldn't join them just one more time for worship. Oh, not today, said the father. Besides, he said, I can worship God in the beauty of the golf course. There was a dead silence for a moment, and then the young boy spoke up. Bless him. Here was his reply. Oh, Dad, he says, I know you can worship God on the golf course, but will you? But will you? C.S. Lewis was much more eloquent than the young lad, but he has the same message for us, and he writes this. The New Testament does not envisage solitary religion. Some kind of regular assembly for worship and instruction is everywhere taken for granted in the epistles and the writings. So we must be regular practicing members of the church. Set your priorities. But there's one more step. Look with me at verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, you have told me to, to come to you. You have said, seek my face. 
My heart says to you, your face do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my mother and my father have forsaken me, or a variant reading is, for even if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of mine enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. In verse 7, there's a transition in the psalm. Up to this point in time, he's been pretty positive. But now he transitions from a testimony of what God has done in his life to, to a prayer for his present issue, a prayer for acceptance, a prayer for guidance, and a prayer for deliverance, an honest, heartfelt prayer as he faced some significant problems. Here's my third point. Be honest in your prayer. There's a principle I note here, and it's this. The intensity of our prayer... Is there someplace, guys? The intensity of our prayer is directly related to the depth of the problem we face. Did you get that? The intensity of our prayer is directly related to the depth of the problem we face. And the psalmist was facing some deep waters, rejection, possibly even from his own family, uncertainty, he didn't know which way to go, false and vicious accusations from those who wished his downfall. No wonder his prayer is intense. No wonder his prayer is honest. No wonder he pleads with the Lord to answer him. No wonder he claims the promise that he is to seek God's face, to go to him. Now, we can't know for sure what the situation and the background of this psalm is, but many scholars believe that it's set in the time when David was exiled from the throne, when his enemies conspired against him, falsely accused him, intimidated him, and disposed of him and forced him to flee for his life from Jerusalem, uncertain of where he was going. And that story is found, it's a good read, it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 15 to chapter 19. It's an old story, but it's a very contemporary story. It's worth a read. But here's the kicker. The conspiracy to get rid of David as king, do you got this? Was led by his own son. It was his son Absalom who wanted to force him from the throne. So if you think the Prince Harry and King Charles thing is something new, no, severe tensions have been in royal families for a long time. And political intrigue and the desire for power is nothing new. Let's turn in the story. It's found in 1 Samuel 15, and I'll read just a few verses here, which gives us a sense of what may have been going on. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1 to 6. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate in Jerusalem. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, come on over here, where are you from? And when he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. What a lot of garbage. The king had people to hear him, but they were being diverted to Absalom. Then Absalom would say, oh, that if I were the judge, oh, if I were king, oh, if I were prime minister, oh, the things I would do. 
that every man might come to me, and I would hear him and give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he'd put out his hand and kiss his hand. He probably kissed babies, too. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Look at verse 10. Absalom sent out secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sounds of the trumpet, this is the conspiracy, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Look at verse 13. And a messenger came to David, saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us and bring down ruin and strike the city and strike us with the edge of the sword. The intensity of our prayers are directly related to the depth of the problem we face. And David had a problem. No wonder he prayed with such intensity for acceptance, for guidance, for deliverance. His own son was leading, had led a rebellion against him to have him deposed and even killed. In an age of fear, be honest in prayer. This was a very, very dark time in David's life, a dark day in Israel's history. But let's focus for a few minutes on one of the requests which David makes in the middle of this. Psalm 27, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. So here he is, he's fleeing from the city, and he's saying, where do I go? What do I do? In the face of intense difficulty, David needs to know the way to go. He needs to have a clearly laid out path, a level path to take him the right direction. Where should he go? Who should he listen to? How should he respond? What will he do in the face of this conspiracy? So in honest, heartfelt brokenness, he prays, Lord, teach me your way. David's prayer can be our prayer. In the times we live in, times of moral upheaval, times of uncertainty, times when there are many voices which tell us to follow their way, even voices in the church, we can pray, Lord, teach us your way. Lead me on the level path. Put me on the right path. As Christians, our clear and sure guidance and direction for our lives is laid out for us in the New Testament. We don't have to dream it up. We don't have to figure it out. It's there for us. So as we pray, Lord, teach me your way, we're asking the Lord to give us a humble heart, to give us a teachable spirit, so we are ready to follow the guidance that is given to us in Scriptures. But there's another aspect to this prayer, Lord, teaches your way. If we are to follow the Lord's way, we need to know the content of Scripture so we can follow it. Not what someone else says about it, but so that we know it for ourselves. The more clearly we know Scripture, the more readily we can follow its guidance. You know, the best way to identify falsehood is to clearly know what the genuine article looks like. The best way to identify a counterfeit is to know what the real deal looks like. Probably most of you have received those strange phone calls. I, I really hate it when I get it at six in the morning and I think, you know, my mother-in-law has died or something and, and it's, it's one of these calls. An automated recording claiming that your credit card, Mr. Paisley, your credit card has been compromised. And every so often we hear the story of someone who actually takes those calls seriously 
and loses thousands of dollars. Well, a while back, I received a real call from Visa. I was driving along the Conestoga Expressway at the time, and the phone rang, and it wasn't an automated call. It was a live call. And the person immediately identified themselves by name and by their employee number, and they immediately gave me their phone number so I could call them back. And then they proceeded to tell me more about my Visa account than I knew, because I hadn't checked into it in the last few days. And so they began to ask me some questions. It wasn't like one of those scam calls where they ask you what your Visa number is. They, they knew all about it. They said, Mr. Paisley, did you spend $100 at the kitchen cuttings in the last 24 hours? And I said, yeah, I, I did, I did. Um, they said, did you spend $10 at Jimmy's Gas Bar? And I said, no, I don't know where Jimmy's Gas Bar is. Did you spend $2,000 at the Hudson's Bay Company? I said, no. Did you withdraw $500 15 minutes ago? And I said, no. They said, Mr. Paisley, your card has been compromised and as of now is canceled and we will send out a new card shortly in the mail. Well, when you've experienced, by the way, they did cancel. It was way, way more than that. It came to thousands and thousands of dollars. I think it was $30,000, right? Something like that. It just all got canceled. So if you ever have a scam, don't worry about it. They cancel it. But when you've experienced the real deal, the misleading is very easy to recognize. So it's with confidence when I get one of those silly calls now that I just go, right? If we are to live the life laid out in the New Testament, then we need to know what it says. So I have a little challenge, a summer challenge for us. We need to read lots of the New Testament. We need to read lots of the Bible, but particularly we need to read lots of the New Testament to carefully study the real deal so we know what it looks like. The better you know the genuine, the more readily you recognize the counterfeit. Do you know, it's good to read a verse or two and have a little quiet time and meditate on it, by all means. But to read large portions of Scripture helps you to get the overall message. The New Testament letters were meant to be read as a unit. So when Paul writes a letter to the churches in Galatia, when he writes a letter to the church in Philippi, when he writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Colossae, he meant them to read it and listen to it, right? So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, great place to start. You can read those letters in about a half an hour. And if there are verses that are unclear, you're not sure what it means, just mark it with an asterisk. Keep going. Mark it with an asterisk, and then circle back later and ask Darcy what it means, right? Um, and then you can continue with Peter's letters and John's letters. Um, now you're getting into it. You can start getting a little bold. Now you can go for a big book like John. I get it. You can't read it all in one sitting, but you can read it maybe in three or four sittings so you get the big message. Then get really bold and tackle Corinthians or Romans. Let it give you the big picture. Oh, yeah, a study Bible will help you. Um, I have an NIV study Bible. We read the ESV here, so get yourself an ESV study Bible. And on that one, don't buy it on Amazon and don't buy it on Christian books. Go to Living Waters, and when you go on Monday, get your ice cream cone with it, okay? Um, that's what it said, right? What a powerful prayer. Teach me your way, O Lord. As we examine and ponder the genuine, we more readily recognize the questionable. As we humbly pray, teach me your way, O Lord, then the possibility of following God's ways 
becomes a present reality. In an age of fear, focus your faith. In an age of fear, set your priorities. In an age of fear, be honest in prayer. Well, we're just about done. We'll come to verse 13. The psalm is almost over. Psalm 27 and verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David's prayer had been answered. The rebellion had ended. Peace had returned. He experienced acceptance. He was received by his people. He experienced deliverance. He was back on the throne. His life was spared. If he returned to Jerusalem to receive his rightful throne, he was vindicated. If this psalm refers to Absalom's rebellion, it's dealing with one of the most emotionally intense events into David's life. One of the most emotionally complex stories in the whole Bible and well worth a read. We can't go into it right now. Time is done. But when, Joseph's, when David's joy is restored, it's tainted by the fact that his own son had lost his life. Where the good news of victory was tinged with the broken heart of a father for his rebellious son. And even in victory, we see David's heart of compassion. No wonder he was called a man after God's own heart. So in spite of every difficulty faced, we're left with this encouragement, this testimony of God's faithfulness through the most difficult of situations. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord at its very basic means to trust the Lord. And as you figured out, wait means wait. It means to trust with patience. And that isn't always easy. In an age of fear, when we focus on the difficulties of life, we are easily overwhelmed. But if instead of focusing on our fear, we focus on faith, then these words can become ours. Let's say it together. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. When I saw what lay before me, Lord, I cried, what will you do? I thought he would just remove it, but he gently led me through. Without fire, there's no refining. Without pain, no release. Without flood, there's no rescue. Without testing, no belief. Through the fire, through the flood, through the water, through the blood, through the dry and barren places, through life's dense and maddening mazes, through the pain and through the glory. Through will always tell the story of a God whose power and mercy will not fail to take us through. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess that the troubles and problems of life do easily overwhelm us. Difficulties, health crises, family tensions, social uncertainty, conflict. Help us not to focus on our fears, but instead to focus our faith. To focus on a power which is much greater than our own. Help us with faith to declare, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.